Hi, this is William Ramsey. This will be the Dehypno Program, Episode 11. And the title is a very simple question with complex answer. The, the simple question is, who was David Ferry? David Ferry was involved in the JFK assassination, right? And it was this testimony by Russo, who said that he saw Clay Shaw or Clay Bertrand with Ferry at their apartment discussing this triangulated fire on John F. Kennedy, right? The John F. Kennedy assassination took place on November 22nd, 1963. And when Ferry, when Ferry kind of disappeared that weekend, he was seen the morning of the assassination in a trial, I think, involving Carlos Marcello. He had the same lawyer as Carlos Marcello. I'll talk more about that. But he also decided to take this strange trip to a skating rink in Houston and made phone calls from the payphone there and made sure everybody knew his name, David Ferry. He took it with these two teen boys. Like These are the people who surrounded David Ferry were these boys. They're not women or anything like that. But um, upon his return, this guy Jack Martin toward, told the office of the uh, parish attorney or the, the district attorney in New Orleans that he had disappeared, you know, he disappeared and he came back the 25th. So he was investigated right when he got back to New Orleans, like, where were you? What were you doing? And that was right after 63. So he had, he did developed kind of a gripe with this guy, Jack Martin. And then there wasn't much out of Ferry until Garrison's investigation, right? So then Ferry gets interviewed and then dies very kind of quickly. Um, dies after this important interview that he had with the office. He died February 22nd, 1967, just as this investigation was taking place. And he was a rabid anti-communist. He was a Jesuit-trained person who was defrocked. He said that he was, um, he kept getting kicked out because of so-called, quote, emotional difficulties. But that was just to cover is that he was, uh, homosexual. And you can see some of these earlier pictures of him. He he doesn't look like his later pictures where he had alopecia and he's, you know, famously played by Joe Pesci, right? But um something happened to him. Somebody said that he uh uh was a test pilot or a pilot for the um U2 spy plane which, you know, gave him kind of caused some problems were also hair fell out. That's a rumor. He was, I mean, the guy was a, a polymath. He knew so much. He was an amateur psychologist, a hypnotist, a airline pilot for Eastern Airlines, probably people don't remember. But back in the day, that was one of the major airlines. So he's shuttling people around uh, for 10 years, 51 to 61, and he was let go as they were investigating him. He was arrested. What happened was he got arrested. Ferry got arrested. In 1961, on moral turpitude charges, I guess, like he was arrested for uh, being with young, these young kids, like uh, having sex with with 16 year olds. But then those cases got thrown out. He has a voluminous FBI file. A lot of people don't know that. I'm almost never heard it referenced. And I'll read from it in this. This might be a two part series, but. You can see what was going on. The, the Eastern Airlines heard of this arrest, and then they put him on leave, and there was this huge company process that involved his lawyers, and he's being, uh, Ferry is being uh, 
investigated, queried, and deposed. And none of this stuff is really covered in the public, but it just shows like how serious of a position he was in in 61 before the assassination. So he also, you know, there's a picture of him joining this uh, squadron, the civilian air patrol. Um, and it's interesting, his FBI file, he, like, these are forged things. So he gets kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church, becomes an old Roman Catholic. Well, apparently he forged these documents for the civilian air patrol and just made this up. And it was, you know, I would give him an excuse to be around these kids that he abused, sexually abused. Um, it was called the Materi Falcon Cadet Squadron. And then he had the Omnipotence. So there was like another group within this. So it was almost like running a secret society within this whole thing. But there's elements within his FBI file that say that he flat out was a CIA agent, CIA ad, asset, um, anti-Castro, Cuban, connected as an investigator as well for Marcelo, Carlos Marcelo, who was the local mob boss in, um, in New Orleans at the time. And if you remember, Carlos Marcelo, was kicked out of the U.S. and sent, I think, to Honduras or something like that after his prosecution. Oh, he deported him to Guatemala in 1961. And it's rumored that that was, uh, it was David Ferry who went to pick him up in Guatemala in 61. And there's evidence of Ferry running guns. There were investigations of him running guns. And it was very closely connected to the Bay of Pigs event, right? Bay of Pigs 61. So just, um, he had his hand in a lot of different pots and a very strange guy, very strange death. And the FBI files, one of the interviews that he did, which I will read, is remarkable because he doesn't seem suicidal. He seems like he's very confident and that he is going to keep going, and then supposedly he committed suicide or died of a brain aneurysm or something. But, uh, like I said, uh, Garrison actually famously said of Ferry, he's his, one of history's most important people, most important individuals, which is really remarkable. So I'm going to quote from, uh, I'm going to read from Garrison's book, and Garrison's book is, the one that's notable is the, On the Trail of the Assassins, right? So that's the one, I believe that came out in 1988 was the most recent copy. That wasn't Garrison's only book. He had written Heritage of Stone in 1970, which is uh, apparently what the one that was connected to, or later became On the Trail of the Assassins in 88. But uh, the information and heritage of so it's not it's lesser known and not as well known. And then there was also he wrote a fiction book called The Star Spangled Contract, um, which I guess is based upon his inquiries and all this stuff. But um, I'm going to read from On the Trail of the Assassins about Ferry, and then I will go read some uh, another book that came out that most of the uh, JFK researchers do not. Uh, reference. It's called American Grotesque. It was actually done by, my understanding, James Kirkwood was sent by Playboy to kind of discredit the whole inquiry, the whole Garrison um, inquiry. But there's interesting information about David Ferry. People don't know the Black Masses hypnotization 
a post-hypnotic suggestion. Like, it's incredible. Like, people have missed or overlooked certain elements of this whole JFK situation. Like, you wouldn't even believe it. But, uh, so, I am going to read from, on the trail of the assassins, Jim Garrison, and then I will read from American Grotesque, and then go to the FBI file. I had met David Ferry once. The encounter had been casual but unforgettable. Shortly after my election as district attorney, I had been walking across Carondelet Street near Canal. Half conscious that the waiting traffic was about to head my way, I began to quicken my step. Just then, a man grabbed me by both arms and stopped me cold. The face grinning ferociously at me was like a ghoulish Halloween mask. The eyebrows plainly were grease paint, one noticeably higher than the other. A scruffy, reddish homemade wig hung askew on his head as he fixed me with his eyes. The traffic was bearing down on us as he gripped me, and I hardly could hear him amidst the din of the horns. I remember that he was shouting congratulations on my recent election. As I dodged a car, at last escaping his clutch, I recall his yelling that he was a private investigator. Our brief street encounter had taken place sometime in 1962, the preceding year. This recollection stirred up others. I remembered Ferry's reputation as an adventurer and pilot. Because I had been a pilot myself during World War II, the legend that he could get a plane in and out of the smallest fields had stuck in my mind. And so had other vague fragments. His involvement in the abortive 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, his anti-Castro activities, and his frequent speeches to veterans groups about patriotism and anti-communism. The name of David Ferry was well known in New Orleans. Soon one of my assistant DAs, Herman Coleman, came in with some startling news. He had learned that Ferry had made a precipitate journey to Texas just 48 hours before, on the very day of the assassination. The source, whom Coleman verified as thoroughly reliable, was the man to whom Jack Martin, Jack Martin had confided after he'd been pistol-whipped by Guy Bannister. Martin had told his this source of his dark suspicions about Ferry's sudden Texas trip. A routine review of our files revealed a police report based on a complaint against Ferry. The complaint, a misdemeanor, had been refused for prosecution, but the report led us to Ferry's present address on Louisiana Avenue Parkway. I sent Frank Klein and a team of investigators to the place. In Ferry's unkempt rabbit hutch of an apartment, they found an assortment of army rifles, ammunition clips, military canteens, and web equipment, and on the wall, a large map of Cuba. Adding to the general confusion were two young men awaiting Ferry's return. They said that Ferry had headed for Texas in his early car, in his car early Friday afternoon, approximately an hour after the assassination. Their account of the timing was confirmed later by other witnesses who had seen Ferry in New Orleans as late as midday on November 22nd. This meant that Ferry probably had not been a getaway pilot, as Jack Martin believed, but it did not mean that we could regard him as clear of any connection with the assassination. I left a round-the-clock stakeout at his apartment to await his return. On Monday morning, Ferry appeared and was brought to my office for questioning. He was dressed as usual, as if he had been shot by cannon through his Salvation Army clothing store. He looked every bit as disconcerting as when I had last seen him on Carondelet Street back in 1962. He denied ever having known Lee Oswald, but admitted that he had driven to Houston early Friday afternoon. Considering his exuberant confidence at our last encounter, he was distinctly ill at ease and nervous, and the more he talked, the less his story held together. For example, when I asked him the reason for his departure from New Orleans only one hour following the assassination, he responded that he had driven to Houston to go ice skating. 
When I then asked him why he had chosen one of the heaviest thunderstorms in many years as the occasion for his ice skating trip, he had no adequate reply. Later, we would learn that at the skating rink, he had never put on ice skates, but had spent all his time at a pay telephone, making and receiving calls. We also learned later that Ferry continued on from Houston to Galveston, Texas, where he happened to be when Jack Ruby called there the night before he shot and killed Lee Oswald. Needless, needless to say, these details hardly were forthcoming from Ferry when I questioned him. From his answers, I did not find anything directly connecting Ferry with the assassination, but I concluded that further investigation of this odd individual and his curiously timed junket was necessary. I ordered my investigators to take him to the 1st District Police Station, there to be booked and held in jail for questioning by the FBI. I was confident that the FBI investigation of David Ferry and any other matters even remotely related to the president's murder would be exhaustive. That faith probably was typical of most, most Americans in 1963. However, it was particularly strong in my case because of my background. My father had been an attorney, as had his father before him. Thus, I had, through osmosis or acculturation, acquired a reverence for the law. Thomas Jefferson Garrison, my paternal grandfather, had been general counsel of Northwestern Railway, headquartered in Chicago. One of the members of his staff, a young lawyer named Clarence Darrow, had caused my grandfather much displeasure with his inclination to rebel against some of the more rigid strictures of the law. I've been told that Grandfather Garrison was vastly relieved when Darrow resigned from the railroad's legal staff to represent the socialist leader, Eugene Debs. Darrow, as is well known, went on to become one of America's greatest trial attorneys. Ironically, as much as I admired my grandfather, I developed a high regard for Darrow's unparalleled ability as a trial attorney and his great passion for justice. For this reason, and perhaps because of his relationship with my grandfather, one of my son's name is Darrow. He kind of goes on, he talks about his patriotism, he's from Iowa, um, and he was 43 years old when I had been district attorney for a year and nine months when John Kennedy was killed. I was an old-fashioned patriot, a product of my family, my military experience, and my years in the legal profession. I could not imagine then that the government would ever deceive its citizens of this country. Accordingly, when the FBI released David Ferry with surprising swiftness, implying that no evidence had been found connecting him with the assassination, I accepted it. I assumed that the Bureau had thoroughly examined Ferry's trip and found it to be of no importance. It irked me a bit that the special agent in charge of the New Orleans office had issued a gratuitous statement saying that the arrest of Ferry had not been the FBI's idea, but that of the district attorney. It was an unprecedented, unprecedented comment for one law enforcement official to make about another. I might have expected such an observation from Ferry's attorney, but hardly from another government official. I had assumed that the federal government and I were on the same side. However, I ignored the comment and turned my attention back to the prosecution of burglaries, armed robberies, and other local crimes. And then he says, uh, Bannister's violent assault on Martin was memorialized permanently in a report number from November 22nd, 63. And then it was also, he, there's a, a footnote, 1979, when the House Select Committee on Assassinations announced its conclusions, it stated that President Kennedy probably was assassinated, assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. It acknowledged that one of the possible indications of a conspiracy was Lee Oswald's apparent association in New Orleans with David Ferry. Yeah, it's already established. 
Um, so this is later on. This is kind of a Russell, fairy, and hypnotism. This is from page 121. This is the, the uh, prosecution of Shaw, Clay Shaw, Clay Bertrand. Shaw's four-day preliminary hearing began on the morning of March 14, 1967. The large courtroom was filled to overflowing. Reporters and spectators were crowding in everywhere. Although I would be presenting some of the evidence myself, I had determined that I was not going to let the media personalize this hearing. Thus, I had delegated the initial questioning of our first important witness to two of my assistants, Charles Ward, the new chief assistant DA, and Alvin Ozer. I would be coming into the courtroom briefly on occasion. Still later, I would be bringing in Jim Alcock. I wanted everyone to know that this was a team effort, not some individual grandstanding by me. At a preliminary hearing, the prosecutor reveals only enough evidence to show that he has plausible case, that he has a plausible case. At Shaw's hearing, we called only two major witnesses. The first was Perry Russo, a 25-year-old equitable insurance agent from Baton Rouge, who long had been an acquaintance of David Ferry's. When he heard about when he heard about our investigation, Russo wrote us a letter, but we never received it. Later, he met a reporter from the Baton Rouge State Times in an interview on the morning of February 20, of Friday, February 24th. He told him about a meeting he had attended at Ferry's apartment at which the assassination of President Kennedy had been discussed. The story appeared in the State Times that afternoon. By late afternoon, the paper was on the stands in New Orleans, and Andrew Skiambra showed it to me. Although it said Russo intended to travel to New Orleans, I told Skiambra to drive up to Baton Rouge immediately. About 8 p.m., Skiambra arrived at Russo's house. Russo had just returned from WBRZ-TV studios, where he had been interviewed for the evening news and kept away from reporters from competing local TV stations. Scamber spent several hours with Russo and showed him dozens of photographs. Russo recognized several Cubans, and then when Scamber produced a picture of Clay Shaw, Russo exclaimed, I know him. I met him at Ferries. Of course, he had known him only as Bertrand, but his identification was positive. Russo was significant because he was the first eyewitness to have overheard Shaw and Ferry engaging in a discussion of the prospective murder of John Kennedy. In my judgment, even without Russo, we had sufficient evidence to support a charge against Shaw of participating in the conspiracy to murder the president. But that evidence was circumstantial. As an experienced trial attorney, I knew that laymen are particularly responsive to eyewitness testimony, and Russo provided that in full measure. Consequently, upon first learning how strong the conversation between Shaw and Ferry was, I decided to take the additional precaution of confirming the veracity of Russo's recollection. The lawyers on the special team and I considered using a lie detector test, but since such tests are highly imperfect and inadmissible in court, we rejected the idea. Instead, we chose to use hypnosis and sodium pentothal. Both treatments were complained about. Hypnosis and, oh, sorry, that skips. Um, that was something they were using. Then it moves on to this guy, Spizel, who like also was hypnotized and was super paranoid and was supposedly kind of like a blow up because uh, it was, you know, uh, he claimed to be hypnotized like 60 times in New York City. So um, it was very interesting kind of case, this hypnotism in there. It says, uh, 
Spizer replied that he indeed had been hypnotized in New York and New Jersey and during several visits to New Orleans in the period between 1948 and 1954. Asked to hypnotize him, Spizel said he did not always know. He, he said he could tell that hypnosis was being tried when someone tries to get your attention, catch your eye. That's a clue right off. Diamond then asked what happened under hypnosis. Spizel replied, they plant certain thoughts in your mind and you are given the illusion that they are true. He added that he'd become rather an expert at knowing when people were trying to hypnotize him. Under further cross-examination, Diamond brought out Spizel's belief that the New York City police had hypnotized him, tortured him mentally, and forced him to give up his practice as an accountant. Have you had trouble recently with a communist conspiracy, Diamond asked, people following you and tapping your phones? Well, replied Spizel hesitantly, not particularly recently. So that's interesting. And then there's just no uh, things about this truth serum that Russo was given. Um, and then Garrison defended his conduct re regarding witness testimony, stating, Before we introduced the testimony of our witnesses, we made them undergo independent verifying tests, including polygraph examination, truth serum, and hypnosis. We thought this would be hailed as an unprecedented step in jurisprudence. Instead, the press turned around and hinted that we had drugged our witnesses or given them post-hypnotic suggestions to testify falsely, right? So hypnosis involved in that. And, and then the Her Heritage of Stone was his earlier book. I'll read the foreword to Heritage of Stone. Forward. When will the world grow weary of murder? When my sons and yours too are gone? Man's rise from a poor but honest animal to his present eminence is a charter member of the hydrogen as a charter member of the hydrogen club is a great success story. It may turn out to be the success story to end all success stories. The descendant of the hairy Stone Age man would rebuild the earth, change the course of rivers, and touch the very stars at which his ancestors stared from his cave at night. There was nothing he would be unable to do so long as he was not asked to love his fellow man. Man has invented the cross, the gallows, the rack, the gibbet, the guillotine. The sword, the machine gun, the electric chair, the hand grenade, the personnel mine, the flamethrower, the blockbuster, the obsolescent atom bomb, and the currently popular hydrogen bomb, all made to maim or destroy his fellow man. These inventions, combined with hate and selfishness and lust for power, are responsible for the unending destruction of humans by other humans. Yet most dangerous of all is modern man's interest in his own self. Hate and love of power could be dealt with were it not for the license they receive from the inertia of millions. The most dangerous of all humans are the gray mice. It is their silence that kills. It was the silence of the gray mice outside the German concentration camps that killed the millions inside. Whether we, we survive the thermonuclear age may come down to the simple question of whether we learn to care about our fellow men. Perhaps our cruelty and detachment will lend to a final day of fire for the most rational creature who's ever walked the earth. The computers which have in, which we have invented now tell us that our losses in a nuclear exchange will be many millions of American dead. We have come a long way from the first stone axe. Is there an alternative to the extinction of man? Those gibbets, thumbscrews, gallows, treasured hates, and fond cruelties must inexorably give way to the expansion of man's intellect and reason. Along with this, he must increase enormously his compassion for and identification with the species. Feeling this, you will become silent forever. So this then jumps forward three years later, right? So three years later, 
fairies back in the in the game because of the prosecution of Clay Shaw. In the Oswald case, case, we had a lead regarding one David Ferry. Someone informed us that Oswald and Ferry had been associated together in the Civil Air Patrol and that Ferry may have taken part in the assassination. And it took about 15 minutes to establish that Ferry had not been in Dallas on the day of the murder. However, I could not get Ferry, who had been known to our office for some time, out of my mind. After my st staff checked him out thoroughly, I remained unconvinced by his explanation about a mysterious trip he had made to Texas on the day of the assassination. So I ordered him held for questioning by the FBI. We were about to have our first encounter with the federal government in the case. It is somewhat analogous to bobbing for apples with your hands tied behind you. After a preliminary questioning, the FBI ordered Ferry released and then took the surprising step of issuing a news story saying it had not requested he be picked up. Their matter stood for three years. We had come across a strange man, an acquaintance of Oswald's, making a strange trip into Texas at a strange time, and we had turned him over to the federal government, and the federal government indicated he was not involved. The FBI agent who questioned Ferry assured me that he had no connection with the assassination. So far as they were concerned on the Dallas end, it was Oswald alone, unaided. Very interesting move by the FBI. And then he goes here to just so Ferry's association with the CIA began at least as far back as that agency's support of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara's insurgents against Batista. He made flights into their mountain stronghold with munitions and supplies. Later, when Castro developed his relationship with Russia and the CIA began to launch, launch guerrilla raids against Castro's Cuba, no one hated Castro more heartily than Ferry. Ferry spoke free, frequently of ways in which Castro could be assassinated, Havana Harbor blown up or Cuba invaded. When the CIA trained Cubans in Guatemala for the Bay of Pigs invasion, Ferry acted as a flying instructor at the Retohalu airstrip in Guatemala. Shortly before the assassination, he once again flew to Guatemala for a purpose still unknown. Ferry made frequent and unexplained flights into Central America and backed into the Cuban highlands with munitions and supplies for new insurgents who, at this time, were unsuccessful. His telephone records abound with calls to Toronto, Montreal, Central America, and Mexico. Until President Kennedy ordered an end to the CIA's continued training of anti-Castro guerrillas at the small, scattered camps in Florida and north of Lake Pond Chartrain, Louisiana, Ferry dressed in rumpled combat fatigues with a combat field cap perched carelessly on top of his false hair, frequently traveled to the training areas across the lake. Once when a friend cautioned him about getting into trouble with regard to his flights into Cuba, Ferry replied that he could not get into trouble because the government was sponsoring what he was doing. It's the most patriotic thing I've ever done, he said. When the New York, when the New Orleans district attorney's office realized that something was wrong with the federal investigation of Kennedy's death and resumed its own inquiry. It had succeeded in persuading a young former mechanic of ferries to resume their earlier association at the lakefront airport. It was hoped that something could be learned of ferries flights to distant places. This objective was not accomplished because as an examination of hundreds of flight plans revealed, ferry did not speak of the destination of his flights and did not file flight plans with the airport control. He simply would take off without comment in a light plane and reappear, similarly without comment, several days later. However, it was learned that Ferry was receiving money in a rather unusual way. 
On January 8, 1967, he gave the mechanic instructions pertaining to a package to be found in a white car, which would be without a license and would be waiting in front of the airport administrative building. Underneath the front seat, the mechanic found a bulging brown envelope sealed with scotch tape. Ferry took it from him, went into the men's room, returned with a satisfied air, and mentioned that he was considered considering buying a new car. Although Ferry, to all intents and purposes, was unemployed at the time, except for part-time investigative work as a lawyer, an examination of his bank account at the Whitney National Bank revealed that during the three-week period prior to the president's assassination, he deposited $7,093. A few months after the assassination, Ferry suddenly acquired a large service station. He apparently ran it much in the same way he maintained his apartment. On one occasion, he just filled the gas tank of an acquaintance and waved him away, turning down payment for gas. Forget it, he said. The government's paying for it anyway. And then this is from his FBI file. This is kind of fairy, kind of normally. I think that's his real hair. But I'll read this. This was the thing taken November 25th, so on his return from his mysterious trip to Houston. Herman Coleman, Assistant District Attorney, Parish of of Orleans, advised that he is familiar with David Ferry from his past experience as a news reporter. Coleman said he prepared a feature story on Ferry's activities several years ago. He advised that he heard that Ferry was mentioned in connection with being associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, and he talked to Jack Martin, a private investigator who refreshed his memory about Ferry. Based upon these facts, the district attorney's office instituted an investigation involving Ferry. He advised that Ferry was interviewed by members of the district attorney's staff and denied knowing Lee Harvey Oswald or having information about Oswald's being in the civilian air patrol. Holman stated that the district attorney's office had received information from the intelligence unit of the New Orleans Police Department who had previously conducted inquiries regarding Ferry's connection to Cuban activities. An unknown police officer had told the intelligence division of the New Orleans Police Department that he was in the civilian air patrol with Lee Harvey Oswald and that Ferry knew Oswald. Ferry must have known Oswald because it appeared he was new, remembered knowing Oswald when Ferry was arrested. So that was it. And that was, and there's pictures of those two together. So it's pretty much concluded. Um, you know, this is the picture. Oswald's 15 at the time. It's pretty remarkable. So now I'm going to read for from um, from this book about American grotesque. You know, some people uh, you know would discount this, but I think it's a pretty pretty good account of the trial. There's a lot of direct just recitations of what went on in the trial, and this is Russo being questioned and talks about uh, Ferry and him being a homosexual and conducting black masses. So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt, but it has a ring of truth to me. This is Russo. He said he was raised a Catholic and added, it's a sick faith. I went to Loyola. I was at Tulane for two years, 59 to 61. During that period of time, the hectic world began to collapse. That's when I started going to a psychiatrist. I was fighting with him. My dad, most of the time, is what it amounted to. Nobody could take my defense. And my older brother, he didn't come to my aid. He couldn't care less about a relationship like that and went his own merry way. My first year at Tulane, I armed myself mentally with the philosophies of Hume, Descartes, Spinoza, and Nietzsche, and some of these others, and some bitter attacks on the Catholic Church, you know. 
I used to relish reading this kind of garbage. So I was all loaded for him. When he wanted to start, I'd bang into it. So he began to surmise that Tulane University was a bunch of communists and left-wingers and integrationists and N-word lovers and a few other goodies, you know. So he abruptly said, you can't go to Tulane anymore. You'll go to Loyola. And he's talking about Barry. Loyola or you'll get out. So in my third year, he pushed me over to Loyola. Oh, and I think this is his dad, which I didn't even have any choice. I went over there and fought Jesuits for about, well, I went there for four years. I fought them. I used to burn them up. I read a lot of Hume, and they weren't even allowing the students to read it. I read it and used to tell them, excommunicate me. The Jesuits were sick. They warped people's minds. One question, when was the last time you were practicing Catholic? Russo. Oh, at about 15, 16, I quit about then, and I officially said to myself, I quit. I quit. It was a sixth thing. It was a crazy little thing. I was in my teens. I was going to Catholic grammar school, and this one priest bugged me. He was trying to be conscientious and scrupulous and all that kind of stuff. And this one guy told me he was a perverted little bastard. He had to be. He told me, if you ever have impure thoughts in your mind, in your home, and you're taking pleasure in it, and someone should come knock on your door like your buddy Tommy, want to go play baseball and train your thought stops, you go out the door and say, well, Tommy, I don't want you right now. You go back and resume it. It counts two sins, two mortal sins, because you've taken two different periods of time. Now, I went to confession seven days a week, communion seven days a week, and confession. I went for four hours. I didn't go once. I would go when I was finished, and I would get back in line because I knew I'd committed about 15 million sins. I knew I had th this many thoughts in the past hour. One time I went to this priest and I got so tired, just run down. I was about 15. I went to this Monsignor, a grouchy old priest, and I said, I want to make a general confession. He said, do you want to make a general confession? You couldn't have done anything that bad. I said, well, I've done quite a few bad things. He said, how long since your last confession? I said, about 15 minutes. He started laughing. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I committed about 20 million mortal sins that I didn't tell the last priest about. He laughed and laughed and laughed. But any religion I have, I get it out of just music now. This discussion led to David Ferry. Perry told me in detail of his weekly black masses. The chalice, which is mentioned in the FBI file. The chalice featured animal blood. The wafer consisted of some kind of raw flesh instead of cake or bread. The next eight or nine pages of transcript of our conversation are a virtual monologue on David, Ver David Ferry. He wore a little black toga, a solid black. He wore nothing underneath, and he would start in preparation for it, burn incense, which always puts you in a goofy mood anyway. He called it the American Eastern Catholic Orthodox Church. He was evidently the only priest in it. After all the ritual, shouted ritual, it ends up, it's a brutal thing, a sadistic quality to it. Bloodletting, chicken killing, stuff like that. All kinds of crazy things going on. Perry described Ferry's theories about committing the perfect murder, described his efforts to train young, recently graduated Boy Scouts to invade Cuba, his habit of showing up at any place at almost any time, and ended up with his alleged homosexuality. Rousseau. He never mentioned he was a homosexual. The only thing he did say is that he tried this drug on his roommate, which he showed me, which he suggested he try on me. I told him to go F himself, and he wanted to try it on my baseball players. I told him to go F himself again. And this drug, what it was, it made a guy drowsy, and then the guy became aggressive sexually. And he said, this is the only thing Ferry ever said. He tried to make love to me. Question. What about being the life of the parties and everything? Didn't he ever try to score? I don't mean with you, but with other people. 
Russo, no, unless maybe he got his kicks just looking, being around people. He was always gregarious, of course. I had my own re reason to believe why. Because, I mean, all the guys around him were always young, vibrant, athletically inclined, and stuff like that. I mean, why not? But he never made a proposition to me. And this guy, Al Landry, the guy I originally met Ferry through, the last time I saw him before Landry went in the service, he said Ferry used to blow all the guys after, he, after he'd hypnotized them, which I felt that anyway. He was a strange sort of person. Question, did he ever try to hypnotize you? Russo, he tried. We next spoke about length about his sodium pentol and hypnotic sessions under the auspices of the district attorney's office. He apparently did not remember much of what went on while he was under except the last hypnotic session, which brought Perry to the date of his mother's death. I asked him his reaction to this. So then he talks about his mom and money pressures and his sex life. And then I just kind of move forward. This is uh, Landry. This is this young kid that Ferry was around. He says, Landry said he would think about breaking off his relationship with Ferry, but it would be difficult. He said that Ferry was teaching his group the art of fighting jungle warfare and that Ferry's plan was to help liberate the South American countries. He said that Ferry often referred to wiping out the rest of the Batista gang in Cuba. Russo said that he and several of his cousins all began to bug Landry about ferry, the civilian air patrol, jungle warfare, and the liberation of the South American countries. He said that his, this eventually got to Landry, and Landry, Landry began seeing ferry not so much as he normally would have. Russo said that on one night, he and Landry and Tim Kirschenstein and possibly Niles Peterson were on in the Intellect, which is located on Bourbon Street, and they ran into Dave Ferry. Ferry said that he would like to talk with Landry privately, and Russo told Ferry that whatever he had to say to Landry, he should do it in front of everybody. Russo then told Landry to tell Ferry to take a walk, and he didn't want to be involved with him anymore. Landry then told Ferry that he wanted to break off his relationship. Ferry then told Landry that he would talk him out up to him about it later, and then returned to Russo and told him that either he or one of his men would kill him for what he had done to him and Landry. Russo told Ferry just to get away and stay away from Landry because he was no good for Landry. He said Landry had told him that Ferry used, hip, used to hypnotize him and give him post-hypnotic suggestions. He also said that Ferry eventually confessed to him that he used hypnosis for sexual purposes. So then it goes on. Russo said that after this incident on Bourbon Street, Street that's the main street in, in New Orleans, like the main party street. He said that he did not see Ferry for about six months and that one day he was driving his car on the Veterans Highway and he noticed he was starting to get a flat tire. He pulled his car into a service station and told the two young kids who were working there that he wanted to change his tire. About this time, Dave Ferry came up to him and tapped him on the shoulder and told him hello and asked him where he had been as he had not seen him for some time. Russo then said they exchanged casual remarks and pleasant conversation. Russo said that Ferry was either the owner or the manager of this service station, right? So this is this mystery service station. He said that Ferry then left and went and sat in a white or very light-colored light compact car and began talking with an individual in the front seat. So Ferry kind of asked him. He has money. He said that he could get more film out of Cuba very easily. And if Russo could sell the film for him, they could all make money. He said that he would have to get $150 a roll for the film. He's, he's, he's 
uh, trading in pornographic films. Russo said the film consisted of one man and one woman, and that story was essentially of a woman cheating the man in a game of cards, and the man eventually beating her up and raping her for doing so. He said the man in the picture was either Spanish or Cuban and had to be strong or rather husky and had black hair. He said that he had a patch over one eye. The girl was an American. Russo said that he took this film and sold it to someone who he believes to sold it to a seaman. He said Ferry then began coming to his apartment on an average twice a week. And that one time he came over to his apartment and told him that he had been working on chemicals and studying their effects on the human body. He said that Ferry had told him that he had extensive knowledge about drugs and mixtures of drugs and how they would affect the human body. Ferry showed him a drug that he said he concocted himself and that it was very similar to an aphrodisiac but even better. He said that he would make a person extremely passionate and would enable him to forget all about his inhibitions and obtain a very free and loose attitude about love and sex. He said he would also erase any feelings of guilt that a person might have toward any type of sexual behavior that he might care to indulge in. He said that Ferry told him that he had used this drug with different friends of his, and this is how they reacted to it. He also admitted to Russo for the first time that he was a homosexual he wanted to know if Russo would take, be willing to take the drug. Russo said that he did not care to take the drug. Ferry also told him that he could get all the heroin that he wanted, but that he would not fool with it as long as it was too hot to handle, and that he could not concoct drugs that would serve his purpose. So that's it. And this is uh, David Ferry squeezed out a living after his forced retirement in 1961 as a commercial pilot by working as a freelance pirate, pilot, flight instructor, a leader of a union of the Civil Civil Air Patrol, and by employment as a private investigator for a law firm that for a while represented Carlos Masello, alleged leader of the New Orleans chapter of the Mafia. As a sideline, he also trafficked in pornographic films. He professed to be a bishop in the Orthodox Old Catholic Church of North America, a cultish underground group quite different from the Catholic Church as we know. At one time, he was himself listed in the telephone book as a psychologist, and he was an enthusiastic practitioner of hypnosis, using it, some claimed, for purposes of salting the tales of quarry upon whom he had sexual design. He was a pianist of some accomplishment and possessed a certain knowledge of basic medicine, chemistry, and physics. He reportedly put in extensive research on his own private cure for cancer, at one time sharing his apartment with several thousand white mice. It was said that he usually wore sloppy clothes, that his apartment was cluttered and filthy, and that physically he was not a clean, the cleanest person. David Ferry was a devout anti-communist and had written in a letter of the early 1950s to the commanding officer of the 1st Air Force, quote, There is nothing I would enjoy better than blowing the hell out of every damn Russian, communist, red, or what have you. I want to train killers, unquote. This, in an attempt to secure an Air Force commission, was subsequently denied him. Later, he had supposedly turned pro-Castro, but reverted to a decidedly anti-Castro posture, and actually, according to many sources, got his wish by training killers in the swaps, swamps across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans for an invasion of Cuba. He also claimed to have taken part in the actual Bay of Pigs invasion as a pilot, and in a speech in the New Orleans before the local chapter of the military order of the world wars, he had been highly critical of President Kennedy for failing to provide air support. Whichever of his credits were true, whatever he was, he was most certainly not the boy next door. At worst, 
he was clutched in the hand of a certain madness. At the very least, he must have been a highly neurotic person with a quick, retentive mind, a leadership complex, and definite powers of persuasion. The day the president was assassinated, David Ferry was in New Orleans courtroom where Carlos Marcello was fighting deportation. Previously, Marcello had been abducted by Justice Department agents and slapped on a plane to Guatemala. Supposedly, David Ferry assisted in getting Marcello back into the country. The judge ruled that Marcello's deportation had been illegal, and to celebrate this victory, Ferry decided to drive to Texas with two young friends, Alvin Buboff and Melvin Kofi. They left Friday night, driving to Houston and Galveston, and visited an ice skating rink in Houston before returning to New Orleans Sunday evening. By that time, a New York New Orleans character named Jack Martin had tipped off the district attorney's office that Ferry had trained Lee Harvey Oswald in the use of guns and indicated Ferry might well have been cast as a getaway pilot. So that's what we all know. Um, So that's from American Grotesque. And this is questioning of Russo again. This is about Ferry. Uh, Diamond, yesterday you you said that you had not said that Ferry was a homosexual. Is that right? I said that Ferry, Ferry had not said that. Diamond, are you saying now that Ferry never admitted to you he was a homosexual? Russo, oh no. Never. I referred to the same Scambra memorandum wherein you give an account of Ferry having told you he used an aphrodisiac on his roommate Oswald that aroused the roommate sexually and he had intercourse with his roommate. Is that correct? Russo, no. The only, he said it worked like that is the nearest he ever came to saying it. I made a point of this down in New Orleans, but probably the nearest he ever came to saying that, but he didn't say anything about intercourse at all. Diamond, is that another correction? Russo, right down on, he said, he said that Ferry essentially confessed to him that he used hypnosis for sexual purposes. I said that is not correct, and then another thing on page three. He also admitted to Russo for the first time that he was a homosexual. That's kind of confusing. So, let's see. There's more. There's just more. There's another conversation about hypnosis. This guy, Torres, who was involved in that. Um, there's a section in American Grotesque about, about Garrison and history's most important individuals. They talk about hypnosis later on in the book. Uh, it's pretty incredible. Alcock, who was like a, you know, worked with Garrison, talks about it. And like being mischaracterized, I think, is really kind of what they were saying, is like a mischaracterization of exactly what was going on with, I mean, they were just, Garrison was just being attacked over and over and over and over again, you know, so it's pretty incredible. But the FBI file is something else, like it, like I said, it's 425 pages. I'll try to get through really one of the most important elements is this kind of follow-up interview with Ferry. There's a lot of important information that goes in detail about the entire kind of um, inquiry into Ferry with Eastern Airlines. It's all very, like the, the deposition is very detailed with Gill. And I think that's important. Maybe that'll be the second part. I'll read about that. But there's also a lot of information about Ferry's background, his CV, kind of like his uh, 
things like that. But I think one of the interesting thing is this interview from February 28th, 1967. Well, it was posted on February 28th after Ferry died, right? So Ferry dies on February 22nd, 67. But this is one that they go visit him on February 18th and seems very competent. Doesn't seem suicidal. He seems defiant and he's threatening to sue them or intimidate them or get people involved. I mean, maybe you're, you can listen to this and have a different take, but my take is that not suicidal, but also very in control and mentally in control, but he would be dead after they visited him. He'd be dead four days later, which is pretty remarkable. So this is the memorandum posted February 28th, taken February 18th by Andrew Skiambra and Louis Ibon to Jim Garrison. Re-interview with David Ferry. On Saturday, February 18th, 1967, at approximately 3.30 p.m., Louis Ivon and I interviewed David Ferry in his apartment on Louisiana Avenue Parkway. As we approached the house, Ferry came out on the porch and looked at us and began to walk down the steps to open the front door for us. As he opened the door front door for us, he told Ivon that he's glad that we finally decided to come and talk with him as he had been trying to get in touch with Garrison or Ivan for several days. He told me hello and asked me what I was doing with Ivan, and I explained to him that I was an assistant DA now and thought I would come along with Ivan since we knew each other from the airport. He told us to go on upstairs and that he would follow us, but it would take him some time to climb up the stairs as he was sick and weak and that he had been not been able to keep anything on his stomach for a couple of days. He moaned and groaned with each step as he took up the stairs from the bottom to the top. This behavior by Ferry impressed me as a phony act, and I am sure he was not as sick as he pretended to be. Once inside the apartment, Ivan and I sat down, and Ferry laid down on the sofa in the front room. He was wearing pants and a t-shirt and two pillows under him. There was a young man in the apartment in his early 20s who was a friend of Ferry's from the lakefront airport. His name is Bert Johnson, and I remember him from when I was working out there. Ferry had given him flying instructions and told me that he had already acquired his license. My first conversation with Ferry centered around airport talk and about people we both knew from the airport. He said that he had often wondered what had happened to me and that he thought I had gone into private practice. He said that he knew a lot of XDAs and they were all dumb with a few exceptions. He then said the reason that he had called us was that he was getting concerned over our investigation. He had heard all kinds of rumors that he was going to get arrested that he wanted to find out if these rumors were true. He said that as a result of these rumors, he had been asked to leave the airport, and now he was concerned over how he was going to make a living, that flying was his only enjoyment in life. Ferry said he was suffering from encephalitis, and that he could not get any rest because of the radio, TV, and press boys hounding him to death. Ferry said on his phone, said his phone rings from morning till night, and that he had talked to Sam DePino from Channel 12 until the early hours of the morning. There's also another investigator following at the same time. It's kind of interesting. It's in this FBI file. Ferry said Sam was trying to con him, but that he was too smart to fall for his line and that all of those people were bastards. Just then the phone rang and it was a reporter from the Times-Picayune. And he said that he would positively not grant interviews and that he was tired of all those bastards calling him up. The reporter must have told him something because he said that he was not calling him a bastard personally, but was referring to the news media in general. He then hung up the telephone. 
Ferry picked up the Picayune paper and said he wanted to show us portions of the story that really disturbed him. He said the newspapers can kill anybody when they, they want to, and that it was never more evident than in the cases of Carlos Marcello and Jimmy Hoffa. Ferry said the newspapers tried to frame both of these guys. He then talked about the Marcello trial that he was working on in 1963, Now the newspapers tried to crucify Marcello. He said Marcello made asses out of all of them when he was acquitted. Ferry said he wanted to know why we brought Miguel Torres back from Angola. He said that he knew what people would do to get out of prison, and he thought Garrison was trying to frame up by using Miguel Torres. Ferry said that if this would happen, he would sue us and everybody. Ferry said he had been contacted by some big attorneys in Washington, D.C., and they wanted to help him. See, he's kind of threatening them. He's intimidating. Ferry also said he did not like the way Garrison was answering questions put to him by newsmen and that Garrison should make a definite statement and not and not say no comment. He said the no comment stirs more SHIT than an hour's speech. Ferry said Garrison knew this and that he was obviously using this for publicity. I assured him that Garrison was not trying to frame anybody and that he was avoiding the press and he could not say much less to the press than no comment. Then Ferry said he wanted to talk to Garrison personally. We told him we would try and arrange a meeting in the near future. Ferry then began to curse Jack Martin and said Martin started all of this stuff. Ferry said Martin was jealous of him because of his relationship with G. Ray Gill. That's uh, Marcelo's attorney. And that Martin was trying to ruin him, Ferry. He said Martin is a screwball and should be locked up. Ferry then said Garrison had better be careful because he knew that some people were trying to torpedo him. That he knew of three people on a local level and a couple of people on a national level who are trying to ruin him politically and are trying to embarrass him politically, politically with this assassination investigation. Ferry said he did not want to mention the names of the local people, but Garrison should be smart enough to know who they were. He then began to talk about how Frank Klein and he inferred that this man was one of the local persons trying to destroy Garrison. However, when Ivan asked him if Klein was one of the people he was referring to, Ferry said that in time he would find out. Ferry did say that Hoover was one of the people on a national level who was trying to destroy Garrison because Garrison had dared to criticize the Bureau and has the whole country wondering if they are as smart as the Keystone cops. However, Ferry said he was glad about this because as far as he's concerned, all cops are bastards and that he has no use for any of them. Ferry also said that he had heard that some people in Washington were talking about the investigation and that two days before the story broke in the newspaper, some people were saying that Garrison would call a press conference Friday and give the story to the press. Ferry said he didn't want to give out any names, as he didn't want J. Edgar on his ass, too. He then asked to speak to Garrison again, because he wanted to see if he were serious about this whole thing. I told him Garrison was more than serious, and that we were checking out all of our leads and information. I then told Ferry he could tell me what he wanted to say, and I would tell Garrison for him. Ferry said he wanted to talk to Garrison himself and look him in the face. I then asked Ferry to tell me where he was on November 22, 1963, and how he had become so involved in this. Ferry said it was all on account of a trip he made to Houston, Texas, on the afternoon of the 22nd to ice skate. He said that all he wanted to do was relax after the Marcello trial, and he had just had the urge to go ice skating. Ferry said that, as it turned out, it was the worst trip he had ever made in his life. I asked Ferry what he did in Houston. Ferry said, ice skate, what else? I said, I don't know, Dave, you tell me. Ferry said that I was a newcomer around the game and that my office knew more about the trip than he did. Ferry said, ask your boss. He had me arrested when I got back into town. 
I was booked as a fugitive from Texas and I've never been to Texas. I asked him to tell me about the arrest as I didn't believe we would arrest a man who was perfectly innocent. Perry told me I had a lot to learn about this life and that I was a starry-eyed kid right out of law school and I was still believing the inscriptions on the courthouse walls. Perry said that after a while, when you get a little smarter, you'll see that this is a stinking world and that what I told you at the airport is true. I told Ferry that what he said may be true, but that still doesn't tell me about the arrest. Ferry said, all right, I'll go through the spiel again for your benefit. Ferry said that after he had taken his trip to Texas, he and Boo Boaf and Coffee stopped in Alexandria and he called G. Ray Gill. Gill told him the police were looking for him and that they wanted to ask him some questions about the assassination. He said that then they drove back to New Orleans and dropped Baboof off at his apartment on Louisiana Avenue Parkway so that they, he could go upstairs and call some girls for them. He said that he and Coffee then went to the grocery store. He said that when he and Kofi were returning to the apartment, he noticed a bunch of cars around his apartment and a lot of people. Ferry said he figured it was the police, so he went back to the store and telephoned. Ferry said some dumb ox answered the phone and tried to suck him into a conversation, but he just hung up. He then said he dropped coffee off and went to Hammond, Louisiana. I asked him, where in Hammond? Ferry said, by a friend. I asked him what friend, and he burst out laughing and said, I'll say one thing for you, you sure try hard. He then told me not to try to investigate him because he could show me my whole office how to investigate. I didn't press the issue any further, but later he told me that he did not stay in a motel, but with a friend who would remain anonymous. Besides, he said, I've got friends all over the world. I said that was very interesting, but what I wanted was his opinion on one other small matter. He asked what? I said, Dave, who shot the president? He said, well, that's an interesting question, and I've got my own thoughts about it. Ferry then sent his friend into another room to get an anatomy book and a pathology book, and he pulled out a sheet of paper and began to sketch on it. Ferry drew a sketch of the Texas School Depository and of the parade route and of the area in general. Ferry said that before he would definitely draw a conclusion, he would have to have some more information and facts. Ferry then went into a long spiel about the trajectory of bullets in relation to height and distance. He said that different guns and shells have different trajectories and that bullets tend to drop as they are shot. Ferry said the Warren Commission did not have enough pertinent scientific information to come to an objective conclusion. He said he did not read the Warren report, but what he had read proved to him that the commission did not know what they were doing. Ferry went into a long spiel about JFK's neck wound. In the course of his lecture on anatomy and pathology, he named every bone in the human body and every hard and soft muscle area. He talked extensively about the dermis and epidermis. Ferry said that if the same bullet that struck JFK in the back or neck eventually struck Connolly, that Connolly or Kennedy had to be a contortionist. He then rattled off some more scientific information in regard to bones and skin and how a bullet decreases in speed when it strikes an object and how the same bullet could not have possibly caused all that damage. Ferry said that the question would never be answered because the doctor who performed the tracheotomy had 10 thumbs and left unanswered the most important question of all time. Ferry then laughed and said that the doctors are almost as stupid as lawyers, but that lawyers are worse because they are always in your pocket. I then said, in other words, Dave, you don't buy the one-shot theory? Ferry said he wasn't saying anything because he didn't want J. Edgar on his tail and that he had had enough with Garrison to contend with. Ferry said that in time he would work the whole thing out, then laughingly said he would contact our office. I noticed at this point he was in very good spirits and was laughing and joking 
and even commented that he's feeling pretty good now and that he had had three cups of coffee already and hadn't thrown up yet. Barry then received another phone call from Steve Littleton and his wife and joked with Littleton's wife about how he knew she had dated Lee Harvey Oswald and that he was going to tell Garrison on her. She must have told him that she had seen his picture in the paper and he replied that he didn't like it because it made him look unphotogenic. He also must have asked, she also must have asked Ferry if it was him that some people identified with somebody or at some place. And he said that people are mistaken or he had a common face. After he hung up the phone, we told him we had to leave. Ferry said he had one more to tell us about the one shot theory. We told him to save it for another day as it was dark already and we had to beat Garrison. I then asked him if he would like to tell me some more about his trip to Hammond. And he smiled and said, go to hell. I then asked if he stayed with Clay Shaw. He said, who's Clay Shaw? I said, all right. If that doesn't ring a bell, how about Clay Bertrand? He said, who's Clay Bertrand? I said, Clay Bertrand and Clay Shaw are the same person. He asked, who said that? I said, Dean Andrews told us. He said, Dean Andrews might tell you guys anything. You know how Dean Andrews is. Ferry then started to go into another lecture and told, and we told him we had to go. He followed us down the stairs and walked out on the sidewalk with us. Ferry asked Ivan to be sure to call him. Ivan assured him he he would, and we left. So it's pretty interesting. That's kind of the end of that. But it's an interesting exchange because Ferry sees, seems to be in good spirits. He's defiant. He looks like he's going to fight. He doesn't seem dejected or somebody who's going to commit suicide or just abruptly die. But that's only like eight pages in this 500-page or 425-page FBI document. There's so much more in here that's very interesting. But it shows like if there's other files, like he's trying to fix this whole case. In 1961, they couldn't prosecute because the witnesses didn't come forward, right? And that's, I think, what happened with the um, uh, Eastern Airlines thing is a lot of witnesses changed their story or didn't come forward. But uh, there's also more fairy information and things like that. So that was part one of Who is David Ferry on the D-Hypno program, episode 11. Thank you for listening.